2: We have spent the last year, almost and a half asking ourselves the question, why is this the book that has been passed down through the generations? We have now interrogated many adaptations. We have talked to dozens of academic experts from all over the world. And we thought before we sort of kissed Pride and Prejudice goodbye and sent it on its way, we needed to have one more conversation with Lauren Sandler about our final thoughts. She has already sent back her microphone to us, so you will hear that her audio quality is a little bit different than usual, but we hope that you enjoy this final conversation about Pride and Prejudice as we wrap up this season. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is our final episode of Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. So Lauren, we're just going to start, we're going to rip off the Band-Aid and give some bad news, which is, this is your last episode of Hot and Bothered, at least for a little while. It feels painful, I got to say,
1: but it's true. I need to take some time to write, like to really get my head in the game right. And here I am, here I am taking what is at least a pause and just fangirling out as a listener for whatever happens next.
2: I'm so excited about your next book. I know that you're doing a ton of reporting. Do you want to tell people what
1: it is? Yes, though caveat being, you know, like I am so in the midst of how am I going to pull this off that you may hear my voice tremble. (laughs) I am writing a book. It is a book of narrative nonfiction about a Southern American family, a family that is ideologically divided. The father is a pastor who believes that he is a prophet and believes that God has told him that we are in a civil war and that civil war is against leftists like the five children he raised. So it's a story about how this family stays together as a family, what threatens to rip them apart, but more than that, how we in this country have ended up on the brink of some form of civil war through looking at the history of white supremacy, looking at the future of climate change, looking at toxic masculinity in family, in the church, and society, and so much more. So it's way too big and I just gotta go figure it out. But hopefully, hopefully in the end, it will be something worthy of discussing with you.
2: I'm so excited. It almost feels worth it to let you go, to go write this book, <laughs> but only almost.
1: I will tell you, I had a funny moment a couple months ago, my writer's group meeting, where I was, you know, saying, oh, there are five siblings. It's like too many siblings. Should I only write about three of them? And a writer friend of mine said, well, I can think of a book with five siblings that seems to manage them differently. And I said, what? What book? And she just laughed.
2: (laughs) To be clear, Kitty isn't really a character, right? Like, Austin skips Kitty. So I feel like you can just name one of them Kitty and barely talk about them. (laughs) You're fine. So because we're saying goodbye to you, at least for a little while— We wanted to really make sure that we wrapped up and got sort of all of your final thoughts about these last two seasons and about Pride and Prejudice in particular. So I want us to go back to sort of the original question that we had of why is this the book that lasts? Why is this the Austen? Why is this the romance novel? And do we think that it's because of the romance that Pride and Prejudice is still so popular? So... It's funny because what I was thinking about is actually
1: our origin story, which is Mm -hmm. many years ago, I wrote an article about evangelical romance novelists. Yep. And about how they were using this genre to try to bring people to the Lord. And it, in fact, was that article that
2: most initially connected us, right? Yeah, that's why we reached out to you. I was so excited because I was a fan, but that is why Ariana and I reached out to you.
1: So I think about an author named Liz curtis Higgs. She's a Christian romance novelist often because of something that she said to me when I interviewed her, which was, I do what I call sneaky deep. I give the girls what they want, and then I sneak the deep in. And it's a term that I have used when I have taught, you know, writing social commentary at NYU and led public voices fellowships at Yale and think about in a lot of my own writing, especially as I've been writing more narrative that, you know, in order to give people really strong radical ideas about significant topics that feel like homework often, you gotta sneak them into the pleasure. And I think that Liz Curtis-Higgs was absolutely right in saying that, like, you know, romance is that pleasure IV, right? Like, that's the direct line. Who wants to talk about the entail? Who wants to talk about how necessary it is to marry for security? Who wants to talk about what it means to come of age as a girl in this sexist society? That's a very different book to reach for than Will She or Won't She with Darcy, So I think that it is that combination that is part of what makes this book last. And that is also part of what makes Jane Eyre last. That, you know, like this perfect cocktail of big, important ideas that are just totally sown in the soil of yearning, of romantic yearning, is irresistible and
2: lasting. Yeah, I really agree with this idea of the perfect cocktail. There's something perfect about the social commentary and the militia and the end tale and the love story together. I disagree that it's sneaky deep. I don't think books last if they're just about romance and or just about will they or won't they. I think women want both. And I think that marriages and love and romance is deeply political and who you marry determines so much of the day-to-day nature of your entire life, that love stories are sexy and fun and are this ivy, but also they're just incredibly high stakes. And yeah, I don't know why I'm really balking at the idea of sneaky deep. I don't think women need to be tricked. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm, you know, I'm coming
1: into this From the perspective of someone who writes narrative about social issues that are always treated Mm -hmm. like homework assignments, right? You know, Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. you pick up Evicted because it won all the awards and got all the press, but not because it's what you're looking forward to falling asleep with at night. Sure. And for the hundreds and thousands of other books about similar topics that didn't win all the awards and get all the press, you're probably never reading them unless you have some like very specific and or likely professional or deeply personal interest in whatever that is. And so because we don't reach for, you know, reading as pleasure reading, if it's Mm -hmm. just about what those topics are, usually, there needs to be something that is high stakes, that does feel like yearning, that feels personal, right? And I think the weaving together of the heart and the society, and as you're so rightfully saying, those things are always woven together. That is part of how how this works so well. And I think that often an author will not so consciously weave those things together, in part because I think that there's a fear that if something feels too social, no one will want to read it. It will feel like
2: homework. hmm hmm I just want to put in a plug for A book that skews political but is also brilliantly personal, which is This Is All I've Got by Lauren Sandler. Seriously, it's interesting looking back because I know that Mrs. Dalloway was your inspiration for This Is All I've Got in terms of like following someone for a year instead of a day. But I do think that your book is very Jane Eyre. It's following a woman as she tries to navigate social systems. And we follow her as she figures out this loving relationship with her child instead of with a man. But I just want to say your book is not homework and does really similar work to Jane Eyre.
1: Thank you. I mean, it does also follow her with men. And in fact, in the end, I write, it ends with a wedding, but that doesn't mean it's a happy ending. And I think that that is also part of where I trip over this genre. And this is something we've certainly talked a lot about is what it means to have a happily ever after when the social problems persist. Right. And do we consider that to be something that ties things up too neatly and therefore negates the lasting social crises? Or is it like, but you know what? We are still individuals with individual hearts and desires. And can't we have both? Right.
2: And to me, one of the things about canon is that one single book can't do it all. And we need these books in conversation with each other, and which is why we need an expansive idea of what canon is. I think that we need the book that we reach for when we want to imagine that it's possible that everything will work out beautifully in the end. And then next to it, we need the book where it ends tragically. But I think that what's feminist about Pride and Prejudice, to me, Is in part this idea that women's lives are so hard that they are entitled to a wish fulfillment book. And reading Pride and Prejudice in context, I'm in the middle of rereading all of Austin. I have not wanted this experience to end. And so I just reread Northanger Abbey and Emma and am doing Persuasion next. And Pride and Prejudice is the only one with a perfectly happy ending, with a perfect heroine who we are rooting for the entire time. And and I think Austin just sort of was like, women have really bad days and they deserve this. They deserve this fantasy. They deserve to think that in an imperfect world, it is possible that it will work out for them. While she knew that it doesn't for most people, right? Like it didn't for her. Her or her sister.
1: So, for this to be a perfectly happy ending, would Darcy have to be a perfect mate? Or are the imperfections of Darcy part of that perfect happy ending? Or is the perfect happy ending really just, as you've said before, she needs a house and she gets a castle? Is it really in the end a real estate romance? (laughs)
2: I mean, like, that's the thing, right? I think in the end, it's a real estate romance. I think that Austin wants to give us a perfectly happy ending, but if Darcy is perfect, he's Prince Charming and Cinderella and, like, we don't actually believe him, right? Like, and so I think that the compromise is part of what makes us love it because it makes it feel more realistically possible, even though it's totally impossible. But I do, no, I think it is in large part a real estate romance. It is, we are afraid we're going to get kicked out of our house. It doesn't matter because it turns out we have the keys to the castle.
1: And so comparing that to Jane Eyre, where the castle burns down Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) and she
1: ends up in the hunting cottage in the woods. Yeah. How do you think that compares?
2: I mean, Jane Eyre is about someone who is without home, but has a house. And she loses a house but finds a home. And so I think that it's interesting given that both Austen and Bronte are like children of ministers who were living in parsonages. Both of these women were in constant fear of losing their homes. The reason that Bronte never lost her home is because she died before her father died. And like that's it. But for Bronte, I think Bronte is just more of a romantic. And so she's like, you know. As long as I have someone I love, I'll have a home. But it's also true. As long as there's a man in the world who loves you, you do have a home in 1835. Bronte, you know, at the end of her life, married her father's curate. She was going to always have a home because a man loved her. And Austen didn't have a man who loved her. And so she was, you know, wandering But
1: let's talk about these men. I do think that it's worth thinking about both Rochester and Darcy as the objects of affection and as the prize in the end and thinking, okay, are these men that we want to be thinking as a prize? Both like, do they do it for us? And also, should they do it for us? I mean, talk about problematic men. Like, Darcy just shuts Lizzie out, negs her, puts her down, screws with her family's life and future. I mean, really bad stuff that then get forgiven as soon as she seems Pemberley.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> also, he can write a decent letter. I want to give him that that prop.
2: And he's nice to his servants. Right. And speaking of, Rochester
1: <laughs> is not nice to his servant, who is Jane Eyre. He sexually harasses her. He gaslights her. He chases her around the kitchen more times than we can count. It does feel like these are two stories that have suggested that that the Prince Charming is someone who will make you feel like shit before he makes you feel like the princess. Right. And I think that that's, that's something that we carry. That is a huge part of what it means to be female born in pretty much any place on on earth that this gets imprinted socially on us. That, you know, the neg works in pickup artist terminology because we are told to feel so shitty about ourselves and that the like slap and kiss of putting you down and then lifting you up feels so much more enlivening than someone who just shows up adoring you. Yeah. And I do think that these two books, while there are incredible factors of these men, and most importantly, in how they come to see these women, how they come to see them as intellectual soulmates, as people who they can banter with, as people who they might even consider their betters, the fact that it starts in such a different place and a place that has such high stakes issues around livelihood, homelessness as well as self-esteem, broken-heartedness, all of that. I do still bristle and I think it's really important to read these books critically and to wonder why it is that we are feeling as much as we are for these men.
2: Yeah. And all that said, right, I think that you just like nailed this on the head months ago, this book endures because we love Lizzie. Having just reread Emma, right? Like Emma, you don't get a kiss, but you get scenes and scenes after Knightley and Emma are engaged and they are flirting and enjoying each other's company. Like you get a real happily ever after. It is much swoonier than Darcy and Lizzie, right? Like just because you don't see Darcy and Lizzie in a swoony situation ever, whether or not you think Knightley and Emma should be together, it revels in the romance. And so I don't think it is that we love Pride and Prejudice for its romance. I think we love it for Lizzie. And part of the pleasure of Lizzie is that she would be able to take down the guy who criticized Pride and Prejudice, right? I really, on this reading of the scene between Lizzie and Lady Catherine de Bourgh, I was like, this reads like the best of Aaron Sorkin. Like this is witty repartee that is complete fantasy. No one talks like that. And there's just something cathartic about having Lizzie as this like patron saint for having the perfect retort at the perfect moment. And I think that That is why we love this book is that we just get to be Lizzie. We just get to be Lizzie or see ourselves as like possibly being Lizzie. And yeah, getting the castle is really nice, but also just like walking around with that amount of confidence and mental acuity and lovingness and a best friend. Like who doesn't want to walk through the world? Imagining themselves as Lizzie, so do you think that's the wish fulfillment more than Pemberley? I do. I really do, because we we don't see her in Pemberley much, right? It's not like, and then she moved in, and the feather bed was more comfortable than ever, and she got her own space, and she never had to trim a bonnet again, right? The sexiest scene is this scene between Lizzie and Lady Catherine, right? Like. That is the, like, bodice-ripping, witty repartee moment. And I absolutely think that that is the scene. That is why we love this novel.
1: And, of course, that's where all the heat is generated with Darcy, too, right? Is that back and forth, that banter. I mean, we could also say the same thing with Jane and Rochester. Totally. I mean, those scenes are hot just as dialogue. It's like, it's Howard Hawks. It moves quickly. There's tension. There are people who are trying to outsmart each other. For me, like, that's the joy of these books. And I'm also in it not just for the joy, like the yearning and the difficulties and all of that. Like, I want to feel all of that. But the highs of this book are all in dialogue for me.
2: Oh, totally. I mean, the other thing just about Lizzie that I was thinking about is that she is the perfect combination of pumpkin spice latte and like radical punk. We meet her and she's trimming a bonnet and she like cares about the roses on her shoes, right? Like she's a girly girl and like she loves basic shit. And then also she is going to stare down the most powerful person she knows and say, no, I'm not marrying you. You were mean to my sister. I think that as women, we get coded as sort of one or the other. Whereas I think all of us are both, like all people in the world, like want their creature comforts and also like want to flip off powerful people. And I think that Lizzie is just so unapologetically both. She's not a silly girl who's, like, curling her hair on her finger, but she she loves fashion and she loves dancing and she loves laughing and she loves her friends. And she also is completely unabashed and is able to, like, hold a political stance. And I think that that is part of the fantasy also is this, like, confidence of living into all of yourself and being unapologetic about all of yourself. Do you feel like we
1: love Jane for the same reason? Jane and Jane Eyre, not Sister Jane.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Jane is also, right, like full of rage and yet like gets into the bed with her best friend as her best friend is dying and is like this very sensitive, vulnerable person. And I think that all of us are that also. You're either seen as like an angry bitch or as sort of a pushover or caretaker, and Jane is both.
0: I mean, it's
1: interesting that Jane Eyre begins with Jane, of course, in a rage telling someone off as a child. Yeah. (laughs) And it's easier to see that, I think, as a coming-of-age novel because we meet her so young and we go through these various phases of her life. Whereas, you know, as we know, Pride and Prejudice is one year.
2: Micklemas to Micklemas. Micklemas to (laughs) Micklemas. Exactly. And I think because of
1: that, you know, Jane Eyre is called Jane Eyre, right? This is a book that is entirely about Jane. We know that. Like, there is Rochester, but Rochester is one object. There are multiple objects, but she is the constant through the book. I wonder if there's a way that you, that you wish that Pride and Prejudice was framed more overtly as Lizzie's book and if we would think differently about it.
2: I don't because of this realization that I've had in conversation with you, which is that we need the narrative voice to be pointing and laughing at everyone, including Lizzie. And that, that is the politic of the book, right? Is that we're all hypocrites. Like some people are the puppet masters, but none of us are above ridicule. And if we think of that as Austin's political position. I love that remove that even Lizzie, as much as we love her, isn't above that ridicule. That being said, like there's a space in my heart for the fan fiction. That's just like us hanging out with Lizzie. Absolutely. Because she, as Austin said, is the most delightful creature, (laughs) right? Like she's just a delight. But no, I think that the bite of the book is in that remove
1: what about you well it does make me wonder if the comedy also is part of why people don't take the book as seriously right that mm-hmm. comedy is considered light pleasure etc whereas Gothic drama you know what <laughs> what we experience in Bronte's Jane Eyre that 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 feels heavy and serious and dark and there's something because it's comedy. There's something that feels sort of flitting and like entertainment in a different way about Pride and Prejudice. And of course, the comedy is always the best critique. Like this is where Austin is at her most brilliant is when she's skewering anyone hilariously.
2: Right. I'm wondering, because after reading Jane Eyre with you, I will never see it the same way. I now am like, The first sentence of chapter two, I resisted all the way, is the thesis of the novel, right? Like, it feels like I just have this totally different takeaway of Jane Eyre. And I'm wondering if you have had an experience like that in reading Pride and Prejudice so closely over the last almost year and a half that we've been reading this book together.
1: Oh, entirely. And I mean, first of all, we have said this before, but reading in conversation with another person who yeah. has brilliant thoughts and a totally different perspective, like can open the doors to anything. I mean, it's it's been such a remarkable exercise with both of these two books to read this closely and this critically in conversation. For me, Reading Pride and Prejudice, I was always sort of like, entail, okay, I don't totally get that. Let's just sort of move past all that part to like the good stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm someone who writes about inequality, housing policy, <laughs> systemic failures, you name it. You'd think, you'd think that I would have been like clocking that is what this book yeah, is really Sandler. about. <laughs> Um, but I think that I have been very guilty of like tying the bonnet on Pride and Prejudice myself and turning my nose up at it a little bit. Like knowing that I have loved the banter, knowing that Lizzie is compelling, knowing that I have like totally not loved Darcy. And if you don't love Darcy, you can't love this book. And that's what the book is about. And there's so many damn sisters and Jane bugs me and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But you've helped me really see the radical novel at the heart of this and the social problem novel at the heart of this. And I honestly feel shame for not reading the book with my eye towards that. But this, again, not only is the beauty of reading in conversation, but also rereading and Mm rereading books at different phases of your life when you know different things and you think different things, you focus on different things, you know. Sometimes War and Peace is about a love story, and sometimes you just can't get enough of those serfs, and they're both legitimate responses to the book. The key is can you weave them both together in your brain at the same time, right? That notion, that old adage of like an intellectual holding two opposing thoughts in mind at the same time, like can you do that with a romance novel and a social problem novel? Well, that is what both of these books are. And it's harder to see in Pride and Prejudice. Yeah but it's there and it is what animates everything. And your sense of that and your outrage about what they have to contend with is something that has just fired this book in a totally new way for me.
2: For me, it's it's our conversations about Lydia. And I think your defense of like Lydia as pleasure seeking and as a 16 year old in charge of her own destiny What it really caused me to do is read the sentence, Lydia was Lydia still, totally differently. I do think Austin meant it as a condemnation. I think Claudia Johnson is right. Austin loves people who are willing to change. And she wants certain people humbled, even people she loves, right? She loves Mr. Bennett, but she wants him taken down a peg, right? She wants him to learn a lesson. And Lydia was Lydia still is absolutely about like, this kid's not going to change. She's still selfish. She's still going to send this letter at the end of the novel, being like, "So happy for you, haha." Ha, can you lend me money? But I just love that Lydia is unbroken. And the novel tells us, right, like Wickham is going to stop loving Lydia really quickly. They're never going to have enough money, and they're going to be moving from town to town. But that Lydia is going to be unbroken by that—that that she does get welcomed back into the. Been at home that she is always welcome at Pemberley, even though Wickham is not. That she and Wickham get, you know, invited into the Bingley house. That she's not Celine, right? Like that she doesn't get punished or Fantine or any of the other sort of tragic women of the nineteenth century who made similar choices. I don't know why it just like means so much to me. I love that Lydia is punished but is also not punished.
1: It's so interesting to think about those different modes of punishment, because to me, the most punishing thing that Austen does is write Lydia as she does. There could be a very different way of writing Lydia, as we've discussed. And yet when you're reading a book, you're lost in the book. You have the visceral experience of the book. Like I cringe and rage when I read Lydia. Lydia is awful, absolutely awful. And... It can be hard to think critically about that. Like you're not thinking about female desire. You're not thinking about what it means to be taught that certain things matter and other things don't or what it means to be the one who's most unloved by your father. And that to me is Lydia's punishment, is not a plot twist, but how Austin perceives her and how Austin tells us this is who this person is. And of course, she's invented Lydia. She gets to do that. She's writing the novel. But she's giving us enough to, at least from the perspective of now, and I dare say there were people capable of this then too, to say, wait a minute, is that really what we think about this 16-year-old girl? So there is no greater FOMO than what you will hear shaking in my voice as I ask this (laughs) question. What are y'all doing without me? What's happened next?
2: (laughs) We are going to be looking at films. We're going to be looking at rom-coms. I think some just straight romance films, because obviously I'm not going to be doing a show about romantic movies and not talk about Dirty Dancing, which is not a comedy. But we are going to be asking the same question of like how does romance work on us in popular culture and looking really closely at these source texts that work on us, that shape us, that make us and wondering while we enjoy gulping these downs, are we glad they exist and glad that they have worked on us for so long?
1: Oh my God, I made such a mistake.
2: (laughs) Yeah, why are you writing a brilliant book
1: instead of talking about movies? But don't you want to have me on as a guest to talk to you about how Dirty Dancing is How I Taught Sam About Abortion?
2: You're going to be on regularly. (laughs) Don't worry. We're going to bother you constantly. But everybody, the when and the who of it is in the final stages. So sign up on our social media to find out the exact details of all of that. But I'm so excited I was more of a movie watcher than a reader as a kid. And so these are absolutely the things imprinted on our DNA. So I'm really excited to be moving to movies. Mm, I'm excited to listen. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon so that we can get started on our new season as quickly and seamlessly as possible pay everyone a living wage even for the time where the show is in development we really appreciate it we are still going to be sharing things on patreon so please sign up at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rom pod we are a not sorry production our executive producer is caitlin hoffmeister we are edited and produced by ariana nettleman and we are distributed by Acast. thanks as always to our jane level patrons baroness gretchen sneakass of breakfast carbston night molly Reilly of worcestershire sauce the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiaralandia, Marquess Tucker Kratt of Seltzerworth, Duchess Lauren of the Tesseract, Right Honorable Claudia Hammerman of Penn Pallium. We would like to thank all of the incredible experts who were so giving of their time and genius with us. And of course, our staff at Not Sorry. Lara Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, A.J. Uramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack. Courtney Brown, Natalie Folkert, Stephanie Paulsell, all of our patrons, and Lauren Sandlor.
1: Love you, Vanessa. Love our listeners. This has been such an honor and a pleasure, and I hope to come back.
2: I love you.
0: Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com.
1: Moonpig.com
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen